headed away as far as McManaman. A moment of brilliance from Steve McManaman with both feet off the ground, volleys this into the bottom corner. You're listening to the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. Well, hello, another week and another episode of the Robbie Fowler Podcast brought to you by our good friends, McDonald's UAE, McDonald's McCafe, great tasting coffee made simple. Myself, Chris McCarty, back alongside the gaffer. It is the main man, the man himself, Mr. Robbie Fowler. How are you, sir? I'm very good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, all good. This ends, my man. I have been inundated by Aberdeen fans, though, this past week. Keen to know exactly what is going on with you. You've been making headlines up north of the border. Fair to say that you've received plenty of fan mail this past I, I, week? I, I, I believe so, I believe so. Hey, hey, more importantly there, Chris, well, not more importantly, but you've just mentioned, uh, obviously, our sponsor, McDonald's. I'm still waiting for my VIP Platinum card, you know. I'm, I'm not getting it, am I? Fear not, Robert. Fear not. It is in the post, and you can tell Sir Kenny Dugleish from me, his sim driver will be in the post Soon enough, I promise you that. Oof, I like it, I like it. A man who delivers, I like it. Loads to get through on this then, the latest episode of the pod. And before we go anywhere, Rob, you've got to tell me, Razor Ruddick, he's reached out to you over the course of the past couple of days. There isn't going to be a charity boxing bout between the two of you, is there? <laughs> no, because I think there's only one winner there. Uh, he knows I'd pump his head off. <laughs> no, he's uh, no, he, he has been he, he has been in touch, and um, we've uh, we've actually come to the conclusion that what he said was absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the uh, that, that's the story. So uh, he's uh, yeah, he, he just said, look, you know, he said, oh, yeah, one of them, one of them things. He's just, he's just probably added a little bit, a little bit to the story. So it sounds a bit sounds a bit funny, and I'm like, Ray, that doesn't sound a bit funnier for me, though, does it? Yeah, you've got to go back to our previous episode on the podcast and our chat with a former teammate of yours, Rob Jamie Carragher, an infamous story that was perpetuated by Razor. Robbie, you put it to bed last week, and yeah, I enjoyed Jamie last week, so I did. And the big names, well, they keep on coming. It's the turn of Steve McManaman, a former teammate, another former teammate of yours, Robbie. And is it fair to say he was your best mate in football? Yes, he is. Uh, a, lot, a lot of time from a lot of love for him. I think uh, unbelievable player. Uh, off the pitch, he's a great lad as well. Um, and obviously with his commitments, I would have loved to have got him on as, 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 as my first guest or our first guest because I think his, uh, his story and his career and his, his, his life in football has been absolutely incredible. So, um, yeah, I think he probably would have been one of my, one of my firsts. Uh, but unfortunately, we've, uh, we've had to get him a little bit later. Eh? But listen, there's still a lot of love there. And you have gone on record as well in the past as saying that he is the best player that you played with. You stick by that assertion? Yeah, no. Uh, look, I have played with great ones. I mean, you look at the likes of uh, John Barnes, um, Stephen Gerrard. Uh, Stephen Gerrard is, is certainly up there with Kenny as arguably one of the greatest ever players for Liverpool. Uh, but in terms of um, myself and uh, my partnerships and my relationships on a football pitch, Steve Stevie Mack is just incredible as a, as a you know I just said what he is as a, as a lad and as a player. Uh, but yeah, I think he was incredible. He really was. Loved playing with him. A lot of my goals were were down to him in all fairness and I love the fact is that he probably celebrated my goals more than what he celebrated his own and honestly if you look back at some clips of obviously my, me scoring goals and you know Steve's on the end of on the end of a lot of them uh, he actually celebrates more 
with me and it, it I mean it's quite incredible so it just shows you what the relationship is like that we've got and yeah he's, he's a great lad great player now before we welcome Mr McManaman into the conversation enlighten us if you can Rob why the nickname Shaggy <laughs> Uh, he actually was there before I um, I actually got into the team, and I think it's some sort of resemblance to the, uh, the Scooby Doo character. Yeah, probably. His, I'll say his dress style as well, because he used to <laughs> he used to dress like him as well, <laughs> same uh, style. So I think the um, the resemblance was uh, akin to uh, the, the the famous Scooby Doo character. And just on that theme, if we can, we had Ian Rush on the pod a few weeks back. You were referring to him on that episode as Tosh. I've been inundated with questions on that front. What's the backstory there? Um, again, uh, this was obviously before I got uh, into the team, but uh, I think it was because Rushy was... Um, well, I mean, he was a phenomenal player, but he, I don't think he was blessed with a great heading ability. Uh, and obviously, uh, John Toshak was obviously renowned for being one of the best ever headers of a ball, uh, certainly for, for a Liverpool team. Uh, and Rushy just got the... Um, <laughs> Rushy just got the Tosh nickname, some sort of a, a well correlation. So it's got nothing to do with Tosh, the famous character from the TV show The Bill. You ever watch it? I I, I did actually, yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, we have, funny enough, he had he had a big massive uh, moustache as well, didn't he? Exactly that, and I promise yeah. you, I did have one listener who did reach out to ask that very question: whether Ian Rush <laughs> was named after Tosh yeah. from The Bill. But we can put that to bed right now. He was not. We've put, a, we've put a lot to bed already, haven't we? So we've got God, we've got Shags, we've got Tosh. Plenty of great nicknames in that Anfield dressing room. Uh, we, we, had, we had brilliant ones. We had um, John Barnes was Digger. He was after, obviously, the, was it Dallas? Dallas, car? Was it Digger Barnes? In, uh, was it Dallas or Dynasty? I think it might have been Dallas. But the best ones were obviously Rob Jones and uh, Jason McIntyre. So Rob Jones was uh, Trigger. Uh, after the only fools and horse character, Jason McIntyre came a little bit later, uh, and he was Ireland's trigger. So we we played a game. Um, we played. A, I can't think who we played. I think it might have been Wimbledon or Crystal Palace. And we had they, they had a corner. So Neil Ruddock turned around. He went trigger. Go pick him up. And Rob Jones and Jason McIntyre went to the same player. So at the end of the game, well, that can't happen again. So we'll have to change your name. So obviously Rob Jones. You know you've been at Liverpool the longest. You can stay trigger. Jason, you've only just come. From now on, you are known as Dave, right? And obviously, for those who don't know the um, the, the correlation there, is obviously uh, Trigger was Dave in Only Fools and Horses. So he is, uh, Jason McAtee is known as Dave. That is absolutely brilliant. I wasn't actually, Rob, aware of that. And it is maybe a topic that we will come back to in a later edition of the Robbie Further podcast. I daren't, though, keep our special guest this week waiting any longer. He is your best mate. He is a man that you have said is the best player that you played with. It is Shaggy himself. It is Mr. Steve McManaman, our special guest on episode 11 of the Robbie Fowler podcast. This is the Robbie Fowler podcast. Powered by McDonald's. McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee. Simple. Dubai Eye 103.8. First port of call, Steve. I mean, how are you enjoying life? Obviously, punditry work now. We'll, we'll get to your playing career as we go over the course of the next hour, Steve. But you enjoy, you enjoy the punditry stuff? Uh, yes, I do, Chris, actually. It allows me to get to the football stadiums. It allows me to stay abreast of all the information that you need to know. So it's just part of what I do at the moment. But yeah, I, I do I, I do actually enjoy it. I work with a, a really nice group of people and um, 
the companies I work for uh, are excellent and treat you very well. And we have a good chemistry. So, yeah, it's, it's, it gives me a nice balance at the moment because, of course, when you play football, as Robbie will attest, you're away constantly. You're away constantly. You're, you're staying overnight in hotels for days on end. Um, you very rarely see the family. Your life is uh, dedicated to your pursuit of how you can be in your best possible shape how you can perform well the next game you're playing, whether it's a, a Tuesday, Wednesday in, in, in Europe or a Saturday, Sunday in the league. So everything revolves around getting you ready for that game. It doesn't revolve around your family. The family comes at the end of the season, really, when you've got time off or if you have time off. But as everybody knows now with football and if you play at the highest level, you're either playing European games, travelling, uh, playing international games. You know, people... People might have time off next week, but it's not necessarily a good thing. It means you're not playing for your country. So, um, you know, when you're playing for your country and when you've got championships at the end of the season, your season just carries on and on and on. And I think that's why you're seeing... I think I think if you look now to the, the Premier League and you see why teams are having um, injuries or why teams were having injuries last year, I think it's just this incessant football without any rest and it catches up on everybody you might go a year or two and get away with it but if you keep on playing as many games as 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 some of the stars are playing it will catch up on you and that, that will be the disappointing part for some of the teams Shag I've, I've noticed obviously the last uh, maybe the last year or so I think your has your role not changed in terms of what you do now because when I was obviously watching the television and you would be like mate, the main pundit uh, obviously for the, te- uh, for the television channels in the UK now, but now you're doing more co-coms. Is that something yeah. that you wanted to get into, or did you did you not enjoy being the guest as per se, or did you did you no, want to get it, into well, the co-coms? It, do, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily bother me to be honest, Bob. I um I I do that on Tuesday, for instance, this week in England, I was um, a pundit, a guest with Michael Owen for the Real Madrid game, and then last night the Chelsea game, I was co-coms. So it it chops and changes at times. I I actually. Don't mind either way. I think um, people ask me to co-com because of a certain reason or the various reasons. And they liked what I said. So I've um, maintained that role at the moment. But it's it's flexible and changeable. And um, it's just whatever people think at the time and whoever's playing at the time, I presume. So no, it wasn't a conscious effort to say, I want to get into this or I want to get away from that. I mean, co-coms, you turn up for the, the game itself and... You leave when the game is finished to a, to a certain extent, particularly now when there's no fans in. Where, of course, the pundits angle, you're in a lot earlier, you're studying more clips of the game. You know, afterwards you're talking for, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, dissecting what's gone on in the game. So the role is different, but um, I, I don't necessarily have a, have a preference for either one. I, I enjoy um, both of them depending what type of game it is, to be very honest. We will come back to, to Punditry, and I would love to get your thoughts, Steve, on, on this current Liverpool team. Of yeah, course, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you've passed judgment on it over the course of the, the past few days. I want to focus in on you, though, and, and your time as a player, Steve. Coming through at Liverpool, it seems that there's a theme throughout all of the guys that we've spoken to, boyhood Everton fan, yet you end up at Liverpool. How did that come about? Well, um, yes, I was the same as as Robbie, and uh, I think you've spoken to Cara, haven't you? Certainly, Cara. There's there's a couple of other we can mention. My dad was an Everton fan. It's as simple as that because he was a mad Everton fan. My father, his brothers were Liverpool fans, but my dad was an Everton fan, and he brought me up as an Everton fan. You know, from the very early age, I adored football. I adored watching my father play. I adored going to games with my father. So as soon as I was old enough, 
like 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 the story goes, you know, you would be carried into Goodison Park to watch Everton, and that's where the love affair came with Everton. When I was old enough to go by myself, I, I you know acquired a, a junior Evertonian ticket, which was like sort of the boy, the the younger boy's pen in the Gladys Street. You used, to buy them, you used to buy them. Used to buy them at Christmas when they were half price. Okay. Really, <laughs> used to get used, used to get um, used to buy them for I think it was about a pound a game in the end. So used to sit in the Gladys Street, and um, I was fortunate really because by the age of 10, uh, 10, 11, 12, we were getting into the early eighties where Liverpool and Everton were extremely dominant, and they were in, you know, they were at Wembley every other every other week. The, the two teams, I think, they were at Wembley nine times in the eighties and playing each other on on numerous occasions. I watched Everton win the the FA Cup in 84 when I was 12 with my father, which was an incredible day. And then I continued to watch Everton win the league, you know, win, win the semi-final against Bayern Munich. Goodison, of course, win the European Cup Winners' Cup. So I, I watched Everton during the, um, you know, the, the glory days as well. And it was just a, a case of, I was playing good football locally. I was playing for the Liverpool schoolboys. I was playing uh, a year above my, my age. Lots of scouts would watch those type of games because there's no, there was no academies back then. And it was a question of, you know, a lot of people wanted me to sign for them and it was who I would sign for. I didn't want to leave the city of Liverpool. I was very much um, a mummy and daddy's boy and I couldn't, I didn't want to leave the house. I couldn't dream of living in another city and staying in, you know, in digs or in somebody else's house. So it was a question of Everton and Liverpool. And um, when it came round to talks, Liverpool were, was so much better at that particular age of, of um, making you feel wanted, making you feel special, making you feel at the age of 14 and 15 that you've got a path to play in the future, even though they had the best team in Europe and you know certainly in England and stroke Europe. So the things they said, you know, Kelly Dalglish was the manager. I went into his office with, uh, with my father and he said, you know, really nice things about me. And as anybody will, will, will mention at the time, Kenny Dalglish was, you know, the best, the most famous. Um, he was Liverpool player manager at the time. They they were winning trophies galore. So when he says nice things about you, and when he says I want you to come and join this club, and when he says I've got these plans for you, and on the contrary, Everton were nothing like that at all. It was almost as if Everton was saying, "You're an Everton fan. You know it should be easy to play for Everton. It should be a joy to play for Everton." Which of course it, it would have been. But I think at 14, when you're very vulnerable of, you know, am I going to make it? Am I going to leave school at 16 and join one of these football teams? Or am I going to stay on in higher education and take my A-levels and go into university and try that? You know, at 14, it's a big, pivotal moment. So um, I remember we left Kenny Dalglish's office and we'd already spoken to Everton the week before. And my father said to me, you're going to have to join Liverpool. And, um, you know, my mind was made up then when I left Kenny's office, to be very honest, that Liverpool was the right, even though I was a mad Evertonian, Liverpool was actually the right club to further my career. Did When you shag, when you talk about, obviously, the Everton Liverpool, that was obviously in the same boat. Did did you feel as though, I mean, forget about what your, what your dad had said, but did you feel as though that was a better pathway for you all along? Or Because, obviously, you must, you must have trained at Everton, so you must have been involved no. with some... I didn't train at Everton at all. I went to a couple of cup finals with Everton and Everton, you know, gave me tickets to watch some of the games. And of course, I went into the sort of the dressing room before one particular game. But I hadn't trained at Everton. Uh, I hadn't really, I didn't really know any of the, and I hadn't trained at Liverpool to be, to be perfectly honest. I just played for the, the, the local schoolboys. But it was a case of when you leave school at 16, I was only very small at the age of 14. 
And at the age of 16 to 18, it's such an important time of your career. And I wanted that job security to a certain extent, even though it was the, the YTS scheme at the time and you, you, you got paid buttons. So it, it actually didn't matter if you joined or not because yeah. they weren't taking a chance on you because you were getting paid by the government. Liverpool, you know, wanted me more than Everton. They would say, you know, from 16 to 18, you'd leave school, you'd join us, you'd do this, you'd do that. And Everton were a little bit blase saying, we don't really do that. We don't really offer things like that. And if if you're good enough, of course, we'll keep you on. But it's so paramount that 16 to 18, you get the opportunity to grow, progress, learn how to play football, learn how to play football with people who have got a higher standard than you did when you played at 14 or 15, who were grown men who you could adapt to how you're playing with. It came down to a simple shootout like that. And to give myself the best possible chance, it was always going to be Liverpool. I knew I was small at 14 and 15. I was very thin, which I continue to be. So I needed time to develop and I needed time to grow. And I was a late starter in that, uh, growing into a man. So I needed that 16, 17, 18 years to be able to sort of adapt to how I could play and start to fill out. And more importantly, start to grow. I didn't necessarily start to fill out width-wise, but I certainly shot up uh, when I was 16, 17. And that, that helped me become the player I was. What what was your? I mean, I know who your favourite player was at Everton. So, what was your what was your role growing up, and what position was you? Because I know what player you became, and what I mean, what what a player yeah. you are, and what a player you was. Well, I was always I was always very I was always very good at my at, at my age group in the in the area where I lived in Kirkdale, and then we play in the Walton Kirkdale League. So, I was always predominantly a, like a goal scorer because, of course, at that age you could take four or five people on and score all the time. So. I, you know, when I played in in the Liverpool reserves at six, I was always a, a forward player. I think when I would go back to being when I joined Liverpool, I was probably a wide player. I think at the age of sixteen, at seventeen, I remember in the reserves when we won the reserves league at seventeen, I played off front with Ronnie Rosenthal at the time, and we scored lots of goals between us. And then when I made my Liverpool debut under Kenny, I came on as a wide player. But then when I went, made my sort of sustained time in the team with Graham Souness. I think I started at centre-forward. I remember scoring my first goal for Liverpool and I was playing centre-forward, I think. So I always, I was always a forward player, but I've never, I was never a, a, a centre-forward with my back to goal and hold the ball up. I was always a runner and I was always skillful. So I think it was only, and I, you know, I wasn't as a, a natural finisher like you were or the Liverpool players who'd gone in front of me, like, I don't know, Aldo or, or Rushy or people like that. They were natural footballers, natural goal scorers. I was never going to be one of them. I was going to be different. So when I'd look at a Barnes or a Beardsley who were in the sides, just, well, with me, but in front of me as well, who I was training with, I thought I saw myself more of a, a technical type of player rather than, you know, the Rushies and the centre-forwards that I was training with on a daily basis in the, in the late 80s. So that's why you know you you adapt your game, don't you? And your you game changes when when you when you start playing with different people. Mm-hmm. We we had Ian Rush on the pods, Steve, and and he spoke and, and Rob spoke about him being a bit of a mentor to, to Robbie, who kind of took you under their wing. Obviously, you've already talked uh, about Kenny and his role in you joining the football club on the field. Did anyone have their arm around you and and make sure you were well looked after? No, it was well. I- I used to look after, uh, when I was an apprentice, I'd look after, you know, John Barnes and I think Bruce Grobelard at times, cleaning the boots and putting the kit out. But, you know, as Robbie will mention, it was a, it was quite a brutal place, the, 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 the first team. 
you know, they were the very best of the best. And it was a school of hard knocks and you had to survive and you had to get on with it. And you had to take criticism. You had to take, you had to take people trying to take the piss out of you a bit and you had to be strong and respond to them. Otherwise you could easily, you could easily sink in that, in, in that environment. It was, um, it was it was hard going at times, but I was a Liverpool lad. I could always stick up for myself. I always had an answer back, a smart answer back. So it was okay. And more importantly, if you could survive in the training sessions, if you could survive on the pitch, and they knew you were good enough, you know that was that was their seal of approval. The fact that they would pass you the ball and you'd pass it back quick, or you pass it and move forward, and you'd play in these games, that was their seal of approval. That was their pat on the back. But they. I mean, don't get me wrong, when I was 17, before I'd made my debut, I was travelling with the first team on a regular basis. So they'd always keep an eye on you. But it was always um, it was always a case of you have to win them over, you have to prove that you're good enough, and then you'd sort of be accepted. But, you know, they all helped me in their way, and the fact that you're still friends with a lot of them now shows that, you know, they were they were nice people. There was no nasty people to a certain extent, no, no people who would say horrific things here or make your life you know, bully you or anything like that. But it was a case of you'd have to you'd have to stand up and be counted and, and get on with it. Shaggy, talking about obviously your um, your setup with Liverpool there. So you obviously you'd played a, a number of years uh, and then obviously you're you training with the first team. I mean, I vividly remember, I mean, obviously I wasn't playing with you at the time because I'm just a little bit younger than you, but I vividly remember you being one of the, I think the first player to play for England under 21s without playing for, you know, the actual first team. Uh, and that nowadays, yeah. p- nowadays people do it left, right, and centre, don't they? But I remember you doing that years ago. Was it, it was a game at Tramie Rovers, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. I, yeah, I think I was seventeen or eighteen, something like that. And um, I don't know whether I must have been playing for the. No, I hadn't been playing for the first team. I don't know why I got called in. To be honest, I mean, it was, it was so far ago. I can't remember. I think I was playing well for the reserves. I think they had a local game. He probably had a few injuries and thought we'll get him across and play. I don't know. I can't even remember, mate. To be very honest. Uh, I must have been doing something right to get called into the team. I was very young. When it, went, it I remember it going okay, and it probably helped. But I was always on the, I was always on the periphery. Then you know what it's like growing up. When you, if you're playing well in the reserves, it's not necessarily like now the under twenty threes and the under eighteens. The gap is so different. But if you're playing well in the reserves and you're doing well in the reserves, you you high, you know you're on you're on people's lips already because the reserves was. You know, just an, an accumulation of the players who didn't play on a on a Saturday for the first team played in the reserve. So the reserve level was very, very high. And you know, there's a there's a time you'd be playing Manchester United and you'd be playing against the Brian Robsons or the Mark Users because they may have not played on the Saturday or they may be recovering from injuries. So the standard of the reserve team level was brilliant at the time. So if you were doing well in the reserves at a young age, you know, the local papers would be writing about you, people would be noticing you. So Maybe that was the case back then. You know, as I said, I can't, I can't necessarily remember the the goings on of of why I got called into that under twenty one team. Uh, I, I mean, you just mentioned it yourself there with obviously doing well for the reserves and scored a few goals, but that was the local papers. Um, so obviously, you're, you're getting catapulted into twenty ones. But if you think of, of of players now in this generation, I mean, they they play you know maybe three or four good games for the under eighteens, under twenty ones, under twenty threes. And social media just tells you that straight away they're going to get into maybe an England under twenty one team or you know a, a good England U team. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But I mean that's just that's just the way we are at the moment. I think uh, I think everybody now the 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 put into these teams and they're almost looked at at these teams. You're not. It's not as if you're 
it's not good enough. That's not the wrong word. That's not, not the right word. It, it it's almost this. They're in the squad. Then we look at you. Then you play, and then you may be out of the squad. I think until, nowadays you need to play, you know, 10, 20 times in the under twenty ones now to get established as a really good player. Because there's, and it's the same with England, the England first team. There's that many players now have played one game, two games, get looked at at training sessions, and then never get seen again. I think that's a way of everybody looking at the attitude yeah. of the person, see what they're like around the camp. You know, back that back in the when we played, it was it was really difficult to get into the England squads. It was really difficult to get into the under twenty ones because there were that many players and that many players playing well. But I don't think it is difficult now. I think everybody's going to be an international somewhere down the line, isn't it? At some at some level, I'm glad you said that because I'd scored nearly 100 Premier League goals before <laughs> I got my first cap. <laughs> well, if, well, I was speaking to uh, who I was with Les Ferdinand recently. Of course, Les was a, a you know a brilliant centre forward like yourself. And when we went through that that era of trying to get into the England team, when it was you, Andy Cole, Chris Sutton, and I'm starting a bit a bit younger at your age, and then above you it was like Ian Wright, Les Ferdinand, Shearer, Sheringham. I mean, it was just impossible right. you had to be 30 goals a season every season to maintain your level in the England team it's not like that now I can pick three centre forwards you could play for England now <laughs> I pick Harry Kane and then I get stuck so it's like Harry Kane will play Harry Kane will play yeah. um, or Wayne Rooney's retired Jamie Vardy doesn't want to play anymore for England so you get to that phase where you know if you're a really good centre forward scoring 20 goals 25 goals and you know, and you're English you're in the squad whereas back then that didn't guarantee you anything. I guaranteed you fourth pick, fifth <laughs> pick. So you might. So it was, it's completely different. And now we've got an abundance of attacking midfielders, haven't we? Foden's brilliant. Grealish is great. Mount's great. Uh, Madison's great. One of them are going to have to miss out. Maybe there might be two miss out. I don't know. They all might go. But I'm saying sometimes you get an abundance of players where you know you can't get in the English squad. Sometimes you you're quite you're quite weak in numbers. And then you're in every single game. I think it was Joey Barton, wasn't it, on this podcast, Robbie, that said it's his belief, and I'd be keen to get your thoughts, Steve. He was saying, and the players that you've just listed there, that's just England strikers back in the 90s. He thinks that football's got worse. He thinks the players today couldn't hold a candle to the players of yesteryear. Do you think football is moving in the right direction? Oh, uh, at international level for England, did you mean, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. time will tell. I think we, you know, we did well in the last tournament. I think we we you know, we should have done well in the last tournament. I think the the route to the semi-final was e the easiest we've had in a long, long time. The defeat by Belgium really helped yeah. us because it made us play Sweden and Colombia. I'd fully expect England to beat Sweden and Colombia, no disrespect to those two sides. When I looked at the way they played and, and Colombia had, you know, the star man missing, I thought England should have been good enough to beat Croatia. I was disappointed, but we got to the semi-final, so that glossed over. We'll wait and see. If 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 we play in these Euros and we're fantastic and we win, you know, will we all be proved wrong? Whether we're playing better football, I don't think we played particularly good football in, in the last tournament, but we got to the semi-final. So again, that proves you wrong to a certain extent. But I'm a football purist and I like to see England play teams off the park and whether we'll do that in this next tournament again. But there's no... I think the fact that we all played our best football a, a long time ago, I, I think proves Joey right to a certain extent. But, you know, we're all saying this. We just need our our national team. And, and it was me when I played and it was Robbie when he played. We need our national team to to prove us wrong, don't we? And win a, and win a trophy. You know, when you look at the, the team of 2004 and 2006 and you look at those names on paper, you can't believe we, 
we didn't win anything with Michael and Wayne and you know Stephen and Scolzi and Frank Lampard. You know that team was incredible. Sol Campbell, Rio Ferdinand, you ever played Ashley Cole? I mean, when you go through it, you think, how didn't we win anything? Yeah, but we were nowhere near good enough getting to quarterfinals. Nowhere near. I know we may have went out on penalties, but we should have been dismantling, beating these teams comfortably, not getting to penalties. So maybe there is there is a bit of truth in that. I don't necessarily think when I, when I watch England in tournaments that we play fantastic football yet. And I'm 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 hoping Gareth um, gets that right in the in the next um, in the next uh, trophy in in a couple of months. Is the, uh, is the is the pool of English players? I know you've just obviously spoken a little bit about it, but is the pool of English players now diminished to what it was years ago? I mean, you spoke before about the strikers with Vardy. Yeah, I think so. Strikers, but obviously there's lots of great midfielders as well. But nowadays there's not as many. Now is is that is that the Premier League's fault for allowing so many foreigners in, or or is that just we're not progressing as players as as, as good as what we were? I think I think we are weaker than the English players are weaker. Yes, when I go back to the you know, 2000 squad, the 98 squads, the 96 squads, the, the, the strength and depth of the whole squad, I thought, was was far stronger than it is now. Whether it's the Premier League's fault, Bob, I don't know. I think you'd have to look at all the numbers. I think there is, I think we have to do something to to get more English players playing in England. But I think, I don't know what happens with, you know, of course, with, with the, the EU rules and Brexit rules and you have to have so many players. But I do feel that sometimes we buy players in from, other countries when we have you know very strong academies I, I think that goes goes without saying I think mm. you need to give the academies a chance I think we we all got chances when we were young and um, I think that's that, that's paramount now I think you know speaking at Liverpool I think they do give their kids a chance they really do so uh, you're not necessarily criticising them but I think we should give more more players a chance but you know I understand why you can't as well because if you don't win on a Saturday because you're playing a 17, 18 year old kids and you're inexperienced you get absolutely slaughtered. In England, we think Borussia Dortmund are amazing because they play Sancho and Bellingham and Reiner. But in 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 Germany, they're getting they're getting hammered because they mightn't get into the Champions League places this year. So it's a yeah. fine line of you know how to balance it up and get the right get the right amount of young players in and develop them, and also acquiring the, the Champions League places, which keep the bosses happy, which will keep the manager in the job, which will keep the fans happy. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, is it? We just obviously no. spoke about the. Uh, I mean, it's hard for the governing body to say, oh, "Well, you can only have X amount of foreign players." Mm-hmm. I think we're too far gone now, so you, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't suddenly say, "Well, you're only getting four players, four foreign players, as opposed to ten or 11. It's well, not you, you 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 look in the academies now. I don't know what the percentage is of, of foreign kids is, but when I was in the so-called uh, YTS scheme, so-called apprentices. And when you were in the academies, there was hardly any foreign kids, you know, at, at 15, 16, because certainly in Liverpool, we felt we had an abundance of talented kids there. And, you know, this was probably goes right across the country. But now half half the kids are foreign. I, I, I don't I don't know. Someone would have to tell me and do, and, and do the maths. But you're thinking that you're acquiring kids from Brazil all across Eastern Europe, you know, sometimes America, Australia, at 15, 16, 17 years of age. I mean, I, you know, is that just diluting it? Is is that just diluting and putting more people in the pool when you've already got players good enough here anyway? Mm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
Well, it's fair to say that you were a trailblazer, Steve. You, you've already referenced Jaden Sancho and Jude Bellingham. I think yeah. they deserve enormous credit. It would have been easy for them to have gone, stayed at Man City, earned a pretty penny. Jaden's went to Dortmund. Jude Bellingham had Man United after him. He made the decision with his family. He'd be better served heading to Germany. You did so. You made the move, obviously a little older, Jude and, and Jaden in their teenage years. I think you were 27 when you made the move to Madrid. If I can, take me back to that period in your life. I know a lot was written at the time. I know Barca were sniffing around a couple of years before that. Arsenal were linked with you as well. The move to Madrid, how did it come about? I, I was getting to the end of my uh, Liverpool contract. I felt Liverpool were very slow in, in, in coming to me for a new deal. And as it, as it got on two years, a year and a half, a year to go with the contract, I just felt that the opportunity now to play abroad which I always wanted to do, I was always thinking about doing, you know, was more prevalent than ever. I felt that the Liverpool team I was playing in, if you look back, and I've said this on numerous occasions, I hadn't played in the Champions League at that time because, of course, it was only the, the winners of the league played in the Champions League and possibly the second team. And I wanted, and my, my football was very good in the, you know, 96, 97, 98. And I felt I just wanted to be playing at a, at, the high, at a higher level than I was at Liverpool. I felt Liverpool were on the cusp of a change, which proved right when Gerard Houllier came in without anybody telling Roy Evans about it. And I just felt it was the time to, um, it was the time to leave. Were you hurt by that? Just listening to you there, and, and Rob's spoken about this very honestly as well, with Gerard Houllier arriving, whereas a Stephen and a Jamie, they got on board with what Gerard wanted. Robbie, your own admission, you were a bit older, a bit long in the tooth. Did that stick in the throat a little bit, Roy's treatment at the football club, Steve? And of course, your own treatment in the sense that that contract wasn't forthcoming as quick as you would have liked. Yeah, I think, I think it's different now. Contract situations are very different now. I think the... I mean, I, I, I'm speaking up by myself. I, I, I'm not asking uh, on Robbie or Jamie Carragher's behind, but I always thought the Liverpool lads or the younger players were treated very differently. You know, I was arguably the best player in the team at the time and I was possibly the worst paid in the team at the time. So some players would come in and earn two, three, four times more than me. So, and I was not, I, you know, I didn't have an agent at Liverpool, so I was never chasing them. I was always leaving it up to them. And... You always felt that they thought, oh, you know, he's a local lad, he, you know, he, he'll be okay. And it wasn't the case with me. It certainly wasn't the case with me. So when they came, you know, with, with, with their contract offer first, it was a case of trying to get everybody in the room. And it was like, well, it's only me. I'm available 24 hours a day. I can easily come to Anfield. Just let me know. And, you know, I, I, th I think I got told that we'll have a meeting in September and the meeting happens in April. And I was just, you know, it's like you could have a meeting and the meeting lasted four seconds. We're going to offer you this. We're going to offer you that. And I just said, no, thank you. And then that was it. And I think they realized then, you know, we haven't, you know, this is, this is not good enough. And then of course, subsequently their offers got bigger and bigger and bigger as it, as it got to the end. And it was like, why didn't you offer me this deal? You know, when we had this first meeting and it might've been a different scenario, but I was well on my way then of thinking that, you know, they're not really appreciating me. I'm still playing well. The team's, you know, changing a little bit. And don't get me wrong, I, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't like the way they treated Roy Evans in bringing Gerard Houllier in as um, joint manager. 
I didn't like that at all. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was awful to treat someone like Roy Evans like that without telling them what role he was going to come in. He thought he was going to come in as a coach. I mean, Roy might have a different, different idea. I'm thinking from an outsider. I thought Roy was thinking that he's going to get a coach, this new um, coach with great ideas and, you know, will put on brilliant training sessions, which would have been amazing. But the fact that he came in as, as a system joint. manager, joint manager, you could only see it, you know, you could only see this, this spiraling. If anything good happened, it was his, it was, it was down to Gerard. If anything bad happened, it was down to Roy. But my relationship with Gerard was great. So I've got, I've got no problem. I've got no problem with, with him uh, as a Liverpool manager. We got on really well. He, he arrived. He said, I'm a new manager. I'm from a foreign country. I totally understand what you are thinking about and why you would want to play. And I know he said, but I, all I would ask is that you could let me know as soon as possible your decision so I could try and get a player ready for when uh, for when you leave. And I said, that is, that's perfect. And they continued to try and you know get me to sign a new contract. This wasn't a case of, we know you're leaving because I hadn't decided then, but it was Gerard's was brilliant with me. Shag, you know what you just obviously mentioned there? So you, you talked about the process of obviously getting them to offer your contracts. When did the uh, the Barcelona bid come in? And obviously the, the club that allowed you in, to go and, Was that a year before? That came, in, that came in in 96, 97, I think, Bob. It came in a couple of years before, yeah. Well, did that, did that have any bearing on your decision yeah. as well, though? Because you knew that no. they were obviously willing to listen to uh, clubs. Well, that, I mean... I think I think that's the stark reality of a football player, isn't it? You yeah. think you're loved, you think you're wanted, and then an offer comes in which they find, find it hard to refuse. And then the funny thing is, I was told two weeks ago by an agent that Barcelona were coming in and were going to bid for me. And then he'd, t- he'd phone me and say, just to let you know, Liverpool have accepted this offer. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard anything off Liverpool. And then about a week later, before the game, I think it was Leicester City or something like that, Liverpool called me in and said, we've accepted this offer off you. So I'd known everything was going on in the past, you know, the week before. And their time of telling me when, you know, it it, it happened was just late. Wasn't professional because I had a game for them. So I think the whole surroundings of it, because when Liverpool said I could go and speak to them and actually... A couple of phone calls later, and I knew it wasn't happening with Barcelona. And then it, it then it became a PR exercise. Then, you know, Liverpool sticking up for themselves, me wanting to leave, and it, you know, and it wasn't the case themselves. I can't leave unless they accept an offer and they they allow me to speak to anybody else. So I just think it it it, it showed how um, how brutal it can it can be really. You know, you are an asset. You were an asset. Yeah. And if someone comes in with a ridiculous amount of money, they can actually say yes. But if someone comes in with an amount of money that they don't think, they just go no. So it was. Um, it shows you that. You know, as much as as much as anything that you know, it, it this this is the business of football. The offer was good enough in in ninety seven, and um, they accepted it. And then some of the some of the stories that were coming out in the press were just all wrong. But of course, there's nothing you can do because. Your words can't win against Liverpool Football Club. So, I, you know, I, I just come back to, I think it was like a, we had a break anyway at that time. I don't know whether it was an international break or something. And I had a few days in Spain, came back, and then you come back to a furore of nonsense in the newspapers that you're trying to say to people, well, that's not true. Well, that wasn't true, and that wasn't true. But, you know, it is what it is. 
Yeah. Well, it, it, pro- it probably wasn't an international break. It was probably just the next round of the cup. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, that, but that had no bearing in me signing for, for Real Madrid in the end. You know, I, I, I think it was just the, the, the culmination of things later on. Once I came back from, from uh, well, after that game, you know, the season after and the season after, you know, my football was excellent. So it didn't... Um, it didn't necessarily have a bearing on me. I always had a thing, a thought in my mind that if I was ever good enough, I, I wouldn't mind playing abroad. But if Liverpool would have offered me a really good contract, you know, two years before my contract ran out, like they'd done previously, I may have said, you know what, I, I can't knock this back. This is amazing. I love it here. And I may have signed, but the fact that there was the accumulation of not feeling yeah. wanted, you know, and whatever and whatever, I got to the point where there's, then it was it was a case of you know what I think I think I'm um, I think I might go. I've got to throw this quote at you, Steve, because I think it was Raúl in the press. You you make up your mind, you head for the Santiago Bernabéu, and it's fair to say Real Madrid wasn't a happy it wasn't a happy camp when you arrived. And no. the quote that I've got in front of me here, this is Ra- this is Raúl for goodness sake. This is an icon of Madrid who said the dressing room is a cesspit of lies, treachery, and whispers. He actually came <laughs> out to say that he felt sorry for you that you were coming into that. What was it? Is that an accurate? portrayal of that dressing room day one when you arrived in the Spanish capital no because I think when he said that it was at the end of the season and by the time the season new season come around a lot of the so-called uh, these people I wouldn't say treacherous vipers because I know a lot of them had left the club you know Davos Suka had left and he was I think he's he had a relationship with someone who was on the television which wasn't helpful Pedro Miatovic left, who'd scored the winning goal in 98. Yeah. Clarence Seidorf left very quickly when I arrived, um, went over to, went left for Milan. And a, a number of new players came in with, alongside with me. And it was actually okay. It was actually okay. They, I, I think when Madrid don't win anything, which they didn't win the year before I arrived, they won the, the Champions League in 98. And in 99, they didn't win anything. They qualified again for the Champions League, but they didn't win anything. And I think then, I think it gets to the point where, you know, there's 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 major problems. And, and like the Spanish press are, and like they are today, everybody blames everybody. But it soon got, it, it, I must admit, when I arrived in the dressing room, it, it was fine. It was fine. We went straight away on pre-season training. The manager had changed, of course. John Toshak had come in, you know, an ex-Liverpool player. So all the exercises and things he was doing were all Liverpool-based. Of course, he spoke English, so that helped a great deal when I very first arrived. And um, we went to a training camp in two weeks, and you just try and adapt and get on with, with a lot of the Spanish lads, which which I did. So I didn't feel I didn't feel under under various amounts of pressure because I went from like one huge club with a fantastic history, like Liverpool, who adorn all the walls with trophies and ex players and ex you know ex superstars and and Real Madrid was exactly the same. It's just people spoke a foreign language. That was all it was. I think with uh, obviously you talk about obviously Real Madrid and obviously your your plan and your way of getting over there. So you spoke about John Toshak obviously being the manager at the time. But one of the things that strikes me about you and obviously not strikes me because I know you, but your role within that dressing room is is vital because you're very outgoing. You want to speak. You want to learn the languages. Whereas I think lots of English players going abroad 
or lots of UK-based players growing abroad struggle because they don't really want to get themselves engaged in the dressing room. They struggle with languages. Uh, but you went straight away there. You, you, you learned the lang- language pretty quick. You mixed and shared lots of, um, I don't know, restaurant meals and mm. uh, various nights out with players. So did that sort of enlighten you to the camp straight away? Did they, they get yeah. used to a little bit more? Yeah, I because I, I got to the end of the season and I knew I had to be very proactive, you see. Of course... I played my last game for Liverpool on, I think, May May 17. My mother died on May 19, um, as, as you know, because we went up to Sunderland for that, that to open the Stadium of Light and I couldn't play in the end because I had to come home. And then I, I, I did all, all the things with the family and then I felt as if, right, new chapter, new start, I have to be very proactive. So I flew over to Madrid early in the summer to look at houses and to look at... at, at um, apartments because I didn't want to turn up you know a couple of days before and live in a hotel it would have drove me mad living in, in, in a you know one in a hotel bedroom when you've got five suitcases and things like that so I went over with um with my girlfriend my wife now at the time and I looked at you know 20 30 apartments and houses thinking that I need to get myself sorted it was quiet so nobody knew I was there which the Spanish press couldn't believe so I'd looked at a load of houses and I seen a house that I liked and I thought, great. And I, I signed the deeds then and I knew it would be ready in, you know, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks time for when I came home. You know, scooted back to the airport. There was, you know, there was always stories of me, the new the new Real Madrid signing, being in Madrid and nobody knew about it and they couldn't believe it. And in the end, I got to the airport to fly back to, um, back to Liverpool and there was loads of press waiting for me there. It was the first time they, you know, they, they'd had a picture of me properly. But I knew then six weeks later when I went over, I moved into a house. And, you know, I was very lucky because I went on pre-season tour for two weeks to like the, um, uh, into the, you know, the mountains of Switzerland. And by the time I'd come back, my wife had, you know, furnished most of the house because some of it was, 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 was already furnished. She'd furnished most of the house you know, the television was in, the horse racing was on. So I felt yeah. So I felt really comfortable when I came back. So when you live in your in your in, in a house, you've got no no worries necessarily. The wife's happy because she can get out and you know go to go to shops. You know, I bought her a car, I had a car, so she had air independence, which she was very, you know, she's a very independent lady anyway. She spoke a number of languages, so she could she could get by whether it's by speaking to people in, in French or German at the time. Of course, she learned Spanish. So we were um, we were settled straight away. So I was happy then. The only thing I had to worry about was my football. My wife got a job in the um, in the in uh, in one of the universities there, teaching uh, English law to Spanish uh, law students. So she was happy. She, you know, it wasn't as if she was stuck in the house every day, lonely. So we both lived this really contented life. I was away a lot, of course, playing football. And away more with Madrid playing the Champions League because we'd go two nights before the game when you played away. So um, I can understand why, you know, people struggle when they when they come to a foreign country. So that's what I've got. That's why I have every sympathy now with a lot of the foreign players coming into England, particularly with, with what's going on with the pandemic and not being able to travel and, you know, not having any family members with you. Because it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard life. If you don't speak the language, it can be very lonely. But you just, um, that's part and parcel of, of the business. You just have to get out. I knew it was going to be like that when it came and I just had to make myself the best possible person for when I started playing football. 
So obviously, so obviously you sign now. We see it in obviously the UK. So when new players sign for a club over here, do you have some sort of initiation? <laughs> was, was was that was was initiations the thing at Real Madrid? Yeah, I mean they they it was this it was a stupid thing. Like we went out for a big meal and you sang a song, and I, it was funny that's at not the time stupid, because that. that's, I know, I know. that's normal. <laughs> no, no, that's what I mean. You know, so you expect something mad to happen in Spain or something different, or them to be more aloof or to be you know have a different have a different initiation. But we went out for a meal and Rob Jones, who, of course, was our ex-teammate as well, he came over to visit and he had to get up and sing a song as well. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, no one could understand me because, I, I, of course, because I, I spoke English. So we just got up and sang a song. But there was about four or five of us at the time. There was a lad, Jeremy, who went on to play for Chelsea. He came from Turkey. He was from Cameroon. He got up and sung a song. You know, Michel Salgado was a, was a player who came in with me. Another lad from Bosnia came in, so it was fine. Actually, there was plenty of people about. And, and when you you know what it's like when you go to those type of meals and have a drink and have a, have some food, you realise that everybody's you know everybody's great. Everybody has a laugh, and there isn't any really you know as Raúl said previously, treacherous vipers in the dressing room. Everybody has their own own style. You'd have funny ones, you'd have mad ones, you'd have quiet ones, you'd have you know sullen ones. And, and and that's just a dressing room in general when there's you know twenty five people in there. Now be, on, be honest with me, Chris. Hang on, hang on. Be honest with me, Stephen. Was it a Beatles number you saying? <laughs> I don't, you know what, mate? So don't, no, you can always rely on a Beatles song. Any you always know you always know all the words. It's ingrained when you're when you're a four and five. You know, like you know all the words for every Beatles song going. So. It could have easily been. It wasn't Yellow Submarine like a song got me initiation. Well, no, the, tr- yeah, t- a trigger might have struggled with the lyrics of that one. <laughs> oh. talk, talk to me about, uh, you, you've said there that you, you've settled quickly and, and the reasons that you've outlined there, Steve. Uh, I remember watching quite recently, actually, a, a documentary with Nicholas and Ilka. Forgive me, forgive me if I'm wrong here. Did he join the same summer as you, 1999? Yes, he, he, I joined sort of the first day and he came along about a month later in the, in the latter transfer window. So yes, he did. He joined, he joined me, you know, I, I got a month start on him. I think something like that, three weeks start, whatever. He's spoken of a cold dressing room. He's spoken of a, an environment where no one took him on. He felt very quickly as an outsider. Now it's fair to say Nicholas, I think if you speak to most of his clubs that he mm-hmm. has been a, a bit of an outsider. Is that, does that fly in the eye then of, of the memories that you have? Robbie's told me that you are a very outgoing person. So did you feel that you had to make an effort in that dressing room and perhaps Nicholas, the way yeah. that he is personality wise, he perhaps struggled because of that yeah yeah on an, in a nutshell yes i had to, i felt i had to make an effort he may have felt that they needed to make an effort for him but you know with the talk we're talking about players who won the champions league 18 months prior then you know they're not um they're big stars and they were massive stars in spain and they play for real madrid that you know they'll make an effort if you make an effort but if if you're quite i mean people say shy about nicholas people say other things about nicholas um, I always thought he was fine. I always thought he was misunderstood, but he was very quiet. He was very quiet. And he didn't feel as if he made made an effort. His effort was to go home, you know, every day. And I mean, and, and initially it, he was okay because he was bedding in, but but he, further down the line, he didn't help himself coming out and making, you know, grandiose statements because he wasn't playing a lot because Morientes and Raul were playing. And, um, you know, he didn't adhere himself to his teammates in the end. He didn't adhere himself to the club at all. And, 
you know, he had to train on his own, if I can remember, for for a month on his own because we train in the morning and he'd train in the afternoon because of disciplinary reasons, because of what he said in newspapers, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it was never it was never easy. And you knew that no matter what happened, which actually came true, because Nicholas scored in the semi-final and played in the final, you always knew he was going to leave the club at the end of the season because of because of the relationship with everybody. So it was um yeah, it was quite sad, really. And, you know, Nicholas has lived this nomadic lifestyle, really, in football, hasn't he? He's gone from club to club to club to club to club. And, he, you know, he, of course, he's done very well for himself. And I, see, I think he's getting involved with um, a sport and director role in the club in France at this moment in time. And, um, yeah, he was just that type of person. He was just very quiet at the time. The Robbie Fowler Academy is the award-winning leading college for football and academic education. You can find out more at the official website, robbiefowleracademy.co.uk. You mentioned before about when Gerard Hooley was coming into Liverpool, your thing, the training session is going to be a little bit different and a little bit more modern, if you like. What, what was the difference in terms of training at Real Madrid with all the Galacticos as opposed to training with, with the, all the Liverpool players? There wasn't, there wasn't any difference, Bob. There never is any difference. You, you, you know, you train for 300 days a year for 10 years, 12 years of your career. There's very little difference in training. It's just a question of pre-season, pre-season, you get as fit as you can. And then you're playing Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday. Well, in, at the time in Spain, it was predominantly on the Saturday. Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, travelling two or three nights around Europe, going to Russia to play a, a game in the Champions League, going to Prague to play a game in the Champions League. You get back on the Thursday, you run around on the Friday, keep yourself going, and then you play again on the Saturday, you win and you do it all again. So training training is just a case of ticking over, looking after yourself. I think we had more responsibility at Real Madrid. You know, the managers would say, look, if you don't feel great, do what you need to do today. If you want to go in the gym, go in the gym. If you want to massage, go in a massage. We're training. But if you've got, you know, if you don't feel up to it, you know, have a have a relax, really. Because the players were ultra professional. You know, everybody wanted to win like crazy and wanted to be successful. And the pressure was on to win like crazy. So that was that was probably the only thing, really. Was there was there more of a technical or a tactical analysis no. videos or not like that? No. When Vincente, Bos- Vincente Del Bosque came in, he kept it as easy as possible. You know, it's a case of we've got the better team. If we're professional enough, we'll win nine times out of ten. We'll be defeated now and again, or we'll, you know, come a cropper now and again, like we did in the Champions League when we played Bayern Munich and they beat us twice comfortably home and away in the group stage. But I remember he didn't say much after the game, let's get back to Madrid. And then we knocked them out in the, in the, um, in the semi-finals after they, they beat us easily in the group stage. So... In the end, it only did little bits of technical work like you would do at Liverpool or you would do at any club. But the day-to-day stuff was all quite mundane. You know, run around the pitch twice to warm up with everybody, start stretching, do some drills to get yourself, you know, to get the blood pumping a bit, get the heart racing a bit. And then you'd go into a game or you'd go into, you know, some sort of formation. But the technical work, you know, when we looked at videos, it was five minutes. It was five minutes on the other side because we knew who we were playing. Might have been ten minutes if we had a European game, but it wasn't much more. So, so when when I was coming through Liverpool and myself and you would go out for a warm up, and you used to cross it, and I used to dive dive and headers in the cop end. Who used to do the dive and headers in the equivalent to the cop end at Real Madrid? <laughs> well, I think back then we just it, we we just paired up, and it was depending on where you were playing. So, if I was playing left midfield, I just paired up with Roberto Carlos, and we just smashed balls with each other up and down the field. 
But we'd warm up as a team initially, just do a few little doggies, a little few exercises. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't as technical as you see everybody doing now, five-a-side matches and all that before the game and all running out at the same time and doing, and even at, when you come out at half-time now, everybody's doing shuttles to get you going, isn't it? I mean, sports science has moved on. And if you can get that extra half a percent by, you know, doing doing shuttles at, at when you come out at, 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 at beginning of the second half, fine. But I see Sheffield United players doing it now and they're languishing at the bottom of the league by a thousand points. So <laughs> in the end, it's not rocket science, is it? You know, you're managing at the moment. If you've got 11 players and the other 11 are better than you, there's a good chance you're going to lose. And that's, that's what happens. Man City have got the best team. They're winning the league by a country mile. Bayern have got the best team in Germany by, by loads and they're going to win. And, you know, if you get a few injuries, it'll knock you down. So you need a bigger squad. But when it comes down to it, you know, the, nine times out of 10, nine and a half times out of 10, the best team will always... I'll always beat the other team. I, I remember the quarterfinal, Stephen. I remember your midfield partner. What a player. Cult cult hero, this fella. Fernando Redondo. And yeah. what he did. I think Henningberg still got nightmares over what he <laughs> did. The win at Old Trafford. Yeah. And then, of course, the crowning moment for you, Steve. Winning in Paris against Valencia in that Champions League final. The greatest night of your career, bar none? Yeah, because, you know, you win, you, you win trophies that people deem are the biggest and the best around. So, yeah, of course, in, in, in a cup competition, you know, people say winning the league is more important because it goes from A to B at the beginning to the end of the season and your level of consistencies. But I think when you win the Champions League, it's it's class now as the biggest and the best, and you you consider the best team in Europe, aren't you, Chris? And, and um, you know that's the mo- that's probably the most important trophy nowadays to win. And the man of the match as well as you were, Steve. You scored, and I think Fergie it was afterwards said that you ran the show that night in Paris. Yeah, it was. Uh, to be honest, we were we were probably second favourites going into that game because Valencia were a decent team they were above us in the league but the game was really really easy actually really comfortable It was nice. it's nice you know to play in a game when you know you're going to win after 60-70 minutes and you can cruise through to the to the, to the the 90th minute knowing that you've, you've won the Champions League you can sort of look and breathe it in and not panic and never it was never a moment's concern that we were ever going to lose the game once we went, won in, went in front so I think that was the most enjoyable thing about it you know, to go away and, you know, eight, nine months later, have my father there and all my mates there, 20, 20 people in the stands going crazy. It was a really nice feeling, actually. I was, um, particularly for my father and my, young, and my younger brother who still live with my father. After the loss of my mother, it was a real nice, um, nice feeling because, of course, there's lots of question marks about you going away. And regardless of whether you win or lose, people will always go, oh, you know, he went away and he wasn't successful. That's, that's classed as, as everything nowadays. And, of course, it's more than that when you go and play in a foreign country and learn new languages. There's more to it all than that. The fact that you've had the bottle to go and do it, you know, it, it speaks kudos for players, even if, if they come back after the year or whatever, the fact that they went and tried it, I think is um, is, is great. So, um, yeah, but to, to, to win the trophy, you know, it, it, of course, it always it always helps with that with that thought process, doesn't it? And Rob, you popped over. You you've had a good night out, a few good nights out in Madrid, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'll, let, I'll let Shaggy tell you that story. But I think what I will say is, obviously, he spoke about all his friends and family being at the game, and I would have loved to have gone to the game. Mm. But obviously, with me playing, and uh, I could never get over to see him. I, and obviously, I was desperate to get over there, get over and see his games, and uh, obviously watch him being successful. Because I love the fact that he probably is uh, the UK's best player that's ever, that's ever gone and, and played you know, abroad. I, I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, but 
I'd never had the chance to uh, to to go. Uh, I mean, he's just spoken there about the Valencia game. I think we 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 were with England. I think at the time. Yeah. Did, did, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. We met up a few days later. So yeah. he's, he's brought us a Champions League medal to show off, and I'm just sitting there. <laughs> I'm sitting there next to Martin Keown. <laughs> right. The legends, uh, legends. Uh, but I um, I mean, I I'd gone away in the um in the summer after our season had finished, and and obviously Real Madrid played. I can't even think who he played. But it was the last game of the season. He needed to win to win the league. So I've spoke to Steve and I said, "Well, look, I've got a chance here." And I was in uh, Portugal. He went, "Well, we'll fly up." And uh, myself and my cousin, who was on holiday with me, we we flew up and we spent um, a, 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 well, probably about three or four days with you, didn't we? And I mean, <laughs> after the game, yeah, we <laughs> we had a good night out. <laughs> Shag, you you want to carry on from there? Then. <laughs> Well, we yeah, you came over. With, what was your cousin's name? Paul. 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 Yeah. So you came over with Paul, stayed at ours, of course, and then um, went the game. And we needed to we needed to win to um, win the league, and we were always going to win at home, and we duly did. And then we went out afterwards, and then we went. I mean, this was but, but, but even before we went out. So obviously we're in the uh, the players' lounge, and you just walked in with like two Real Madrid tops, didn't oh, you? Oh yeah, said, yeah, yeah. Stick them on. And Stick we them like, on. What, yeah, what for? He went, no, come on, we'll, get, we'll do the tour of the city. Oh, and yeah, I like, forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, like 11 yeah. o'clock at night, wasn't it? Yeah, we were getting, the tour bus was outside, wasn't it? And I said, put a T-shirt on, jump on the bus with us and we'll go around the city. And you were saying, oh, no, I can't do that. I said, it's fine, don't worry about it. Everybody does it. So you put your, whatever, 2003, 2002 winner's T-shirt on. Oh, that was the first time the- I've ever won the league, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> jump on the bus and then off we go around Madrid at 11 o'clock at night, you know, an hour after the game, an hour and a half after the game with you know, millions of people on the streets. And they've already boarded up this, this um, fountain for Belez where we go around and we celebrate on. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of at the time political problems with the team and not the council saying you can't celebrate there and that's what Real Madrid do. And so there was a lot, there was a lot of, um, well, there was a lot of fallout, which I'll come to at the end of this. And, um, Robbie jumped on the bus. We stop off. I said, "Are you coming on?" He said, "Oh no, I can't go and dance around the fountain. That's, you know, that's that's not allowed." And, and <laughs> that's uh, taking <laughs> too much. <laughs> so we go and do all that. I said, "All right, stay there." And then as we as we drive off, there's a load of English fans. Me and they all start singing your name, don't they? They all see you on the bus. Can't believe it. All start singing your name. Oh, and then brilliant. we're and then we're on. Then are we? We we get back to the ground and then we're off to the restaurant, and then. The restaurant turns into a, you know, the restaurant is at two, three in the morning, turns into a nightclub at four, <laughs> five, six in the morning, leave the nightclub at quarter past nine in the morning, early in the morning, and then it's it's off to a certain Ronaldo's house to, for there to carry to carry on the party. And, and little did I know we had a tour of the city at eleven o'clock in the uh, in the morning. I think. And I was still in the I, I was still in Ronaldo's house with you. Yeah, well, but I, I, what I always remember about that as well is so we're in the nightclub in uh, in Madrid, and Ronaldo he just comes up and he's got like a a, a big glass of a, a, a vodka and vodka and coke or vodka and something, and he's given me this drink. Oh, I think he's given me the drink, and I just <laughs> took it off him and just downed it in one, and he went no 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 cheers. <laughs> 
So I had to go and buy him a drink. <laughs> I had to go and buy him a drink with him a bonus for winning the league. <laughs> but then, you've told me this before, Rob, you then get to Ronaldo's house. Big pile, I'm sure, in the suburbs, one of the posh suburbs of Madrid. You walk into Ronaldo's house and what's, go- what's going off? So um, what happened was, so we, we've obviously gone back. So we, myself and, and Steve, we went back to his house before Ronaldo got there. Uh, so obviously we go to a security guard lets us in and we go straight into this um, this bar and there's a pool table there's a big massive telly uh, and there's a bar so Steve goes behind the bar he starts pulling the pints so we're having a pint playing a game of pool next minute Ronaldo comes in uh, <laughs> and then he goes behind the bar then he, he he plays some music and he puts on the smoke machine <laughs> he puts on the smoke machine and they, these big flashing lights and then we hear well loving it loving it loving it coming at you live from Leeds and next week he starts playing some DJ from Leeds and I'm like wow what is happening here oh god <laughs> one of the most surreal nights I've ever had in yeah. my life and obviously we, we obviously had a few drinks there and then a, f- a few hours later you had to go and do that tour yeah. of the city I never, I never went the two people who missed the tour of the city were me and Ronaldo by uh, uh, sorry, sorry I will rephrase that the three people who never went with me, you oh, yeah. <laughs> me, you you're, you're <laughs> painted and decorated yeah. cousin Paul and Ronaldo and Ronaldo the, I mean the, the, the fallout of that night was that's when Vincente Del Bosque was, was, was sacked then really he got, he got, to, he got relieved of his, of his job duties then and Fernando Hierro, the, the skipper, whose contract was up for renewal and he was promised a new contract, he was effectively sacked as well. And, and uh, it was all about the fallout between the club, the politics of the club, the owner of, the, of, of Real Madrid wanting us to do one thing, the council saying another, the players rebelling, and then the, the president came out and, um, you know, unceremoniously sacked Del Bosque, which was awful, and then, and then reneged on his deal with uh, Fernando Hierro. And then I think that you knew what it was uh, what it started to become like then. Yeah, I mean, that was the real Galactico era because yeah. a lot of people forget you, you won the Champions League in 2000. Figo, and I still remember, I was in Tenerife. I would have been 14 years of age, I think yeah. I was. The yeah. news broke. Yeah. I was, yeah. I promise you, Rob, 14. And the news broke, Figo leaving Barca Trial. Holy yeah. shit. That's massive news. Zidane in 2001, and then Ronaldo joins in 2002. And you're a part of it, Steve. You're seeing the Galacticos being built. We've obviously heard a story about Ronaldo, but Figo and Zidane, did you get on with them? Yeah, great. Luis was great. Spoke really good English. His wife is Scandinavian. She's from Sweden, Helen. Yeah, he was a lovely lad. Got on really well. Zizou, same. I mean, when Zizou arrived, he didn't know Spanish. He only spoke French and Italian. So he was very shy, actually. Kept himself to himself in the dressing room like you would do until he learned the Spanish language. He was very mates with Claude Macalelli, uh, very good mates with Claude Macalelli and the French-speaking lads. But yeah, they were brilliant. No egos when they arrived. Fitted into the dressing room really well. Of course, wanted to succeed because that's what they do and they have done at Barcelona and, and, and Juventus previously. So it was actually it was actually very, very easy. Very easy. They knew the, they knew the dressing room that they were coming into because we were... We'd won the league and we'd won the Champions League previous. You know, they'd won the Champions League in 98. So they were coming into a very, a very successful dressing room that you knew didn't need tinkering with. It was a case of, you know, one player coming in and adding to what we had and no problem at, no problem at all. They were, uh, they were great guys, actually. Great guys. They all were, I must admit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there was any nuisances in the, in, in the team. We had a really good, um, 
we had a really good relationship the, the whole side no no pain in the asses really everybody wanted to win and if you were the pain in the ass, you were just you know you were you were you were out the club to be very honest it wasn't it wasn't hard it was just a case of let's get let's get on with it and let's try and be successful Obviously, God on this pod, he's the best number nine you've played with, but yes. Ronaldo must have pushed him pretty close. How good was he? Yeah, he was amazing, but I was just sad when he joined us. He'd had an incredible amount of problems with his knees and he'd been injured a lot. Um, so you can only imagine how good he was at 19, at Barca, things like that. I mean, people say he was, you know, just out of this world, really. And when he joined us, he was brilliant, but he was, he was struggling to keep his weight down. He was struggling to keep fit. His lifestyle wasn't probably conducive to a, a fully fit, you know, superstar because the Brazilians like to enjoy themselves. That's how they lived and, and that's how they were. And himself and apparently. And, yeah. And, and apparently they liked Leeds DJs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, Roberto Carlos liked to like to enjoy himself. Flavio Conceição, who was there, another Brazilian. Julio Cesare was there, another Brazilian. They liked they liked to enjoy themselves and it was fine. The manager had no problem with it as long as he turned up. And did the business, which they did, and played great. It's just that, you know, because of Ronnie's injury problems and he's had so many problems with his knees, you know, he was he was very, he had to pick and choose when he trained anyway. So, you know, it was harder for him, very much harder for him to um, to keep on the good side of, you know, of, of a high level of fitness. Roberto Carlos was easy. He was just, you know, he, he'd do whatever he needed to do and just run around like a madman. But with Ronnie, it was different. But they were all um, they were all great lads and great characters and generous to the hilt and always had a smile on the face. And, you know, that that's brilliant when you go into the training ground and go into the dressing room of them on. It's amazing. They're just memories of Madrid. And I always yeah. think, uh, Steve, I like, when I look back and I read through the stories, I mean, you were loved by the by the Real Madrid fans there's always a feeling that you were dealt with harshly i mean when you look back on the, the you're kind of coming to an end of your four years in madrid and, and you've had time now to reflect later in life do you feel you were hard done by the way that you were treated towards the end no because towards the end i wanted to leave uh, it, it was i thought the politics of real madrid and the fact that you need to vote in and out a president every four years five years it's just it's it's like a you know a popularity contest at times it's like being um it's like being in charge of the government some things you get right some things you get wrong and i think you know florentino perez who's, who's president now and who's been brilliant as, as certainly a second stint as a president i think the fact that he ended his tenure a couple of years later and the fact that when i left and real madrid went through this bad in a few years where they were awful and were chopping and changing the managers every five minutes. I, th- I think it showed that what he was thinking of, his dynasty in the first, in his first stint was wrong. He wanted to bring in a lot of these star players and he wanted to dilute the squad and bring in younger players from the academy to try and balance the books. And once I left and Morientes left and Makaleli left and, and Solari left, he, you know, the, the, the heart of the squad was ripped out of the team and the quality that came in from the academy wasn't good enough and then you see them you know it, it, the, the treatment of um, of um, Hierro and the treatment of Vincente Del Bosque was really poor and we went then of the manager looking after the team to then the president and the sporting director trying to run the team and that and you, you knew I, I've said before that that, that you know that pre-season when I was I was going to leave because I left eventually in the August it was ridiculous. We went to we went and visited seven countries around the the Far East, shaking hands with people and having dinners. 
And I once said about the Disneyfication about Real Madrid, that's what was happening. They were interested in, they were more interested in making money than they were of looking after the team. And you could see the writing on the wall. You really could. You know, Del Bosque went, who was one of the most successful managers ever, and they brought in Manchester United's number two at the time, which, of course, I felt sorry for Carlos because people looked down on him straight away. You know, he's a lovely man and he tried his best, but people, when he walked through the door, people went, well, I'm not having, I'm not having him. You know, he's, 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 not, he's, he's the number two at United. But Valdano had brought him in and they felt as if they could control him. And of course, his tenure didn't last long at all. And then, I mean, a number of managers came in very quickly. Luxembourg, Oh Camacho stayed for five minutes and you could tell it was, it was a sinking ship. And then for the next, well, I don't even know, four or five years, you know, they were, the football he played wasn't great and they were not as successful as, um, as they once were. And it was a sinking ship. And then Kevin Keegan gets on the phone. The Spice Boys are back. You're back with Robbie. <laughs> back with Robbie, yeah. <laughs> you know, Man City. It's a good time that you enjoy your football at City, both years. Yeah, I did. I was. I. It spoiled it for me because I was injured so often. So it was less. It was less enjoyable. But the club itself was was brilliant. Kevin was great. You know, Derek Fazakli was there. The lads were all brilliant. The staff. I, I thought. God, I got on very well with all the staff at the at the grounds and stuff. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time. You just, of course. I just wanted to play more of a part. I had really bad problems with my with my both Achilles tendons, and I was getting muscular injuries, and that's why I, you know, I decided to stop. I mean, I stopped at thirty three, and I just knew that if I would have carried on, I would have I would have gone to somewhere else and needed operations, which wasn't fair on on the team that I would have gone to. I needed something to do with my Achilles tendons, which of course is never an easy operation. So I was very conscious of that. I felt it because of my injuries, I was losing a little bit of pace, which was paramount to how I played. And I just knew I wasn't enjoying the, the football side of it because I was in agony constantly. You know, when I'd start training, I'd be 20 yards behind everybody waiting for my Achilles tendons to warm up. And I knew I said to the missus, I said to the missus at the time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop at the end of the year. I'll just go nice and quietly. I'll stop. And, you know, I'm not into all that furore about retiring and shouting it from the rooftops and, people saying nice things about I am not interested in that at all so I uh, got to the end of the season and um, that was it I knew in my mind that I, even though I had offers from foreign countries to play I was I wasn't really interested in it I just wanted to I, I didn't have children at the time I just wanted to sort of depart football quietly and um, get on with the rest of my life really and fair play what a career it is and, and listening to you there Rob you must have loved just that final couple of seasons with, with Maka at, at Main Road or was it Etihad it was no, Main the Road Etihad, yeah, it was Etihad yeah well I mean it goes out saying I've been on record numerous times and said he is the greatest player I've played with and we, we've spoke about all his career there, you know places where he's been but we never really went into the detail of, of how good he was at Liverpool um, you know, we spoke before about his positions I think uh, certainly the 95 96 year at Liverpool when he was just I mean he was unstoppable uh, You know, we, we did have a decent team but whenever he got the mm. ball he'd, he'd run the length of the pitch and no one would get it off him uh, he, he was our get out man you know, anyone was struggling you give him the ball and he would just control the game so he was yeah I mean incredible to play with a real good mate of mine obviously you all know that but yeah getting to spend his obviously last year in um, Man City Albeit we weren't the same players, I mean mm. it was still uh, it was still brilliant. I, I like Steve, I, I wasn't really into the furore of, of telling everyone that I was retiring. 
and yeah. why and why I can still get my boots back on. <laughs> <laughs> You're available for selection. <laughs> Just available for selection. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, look, I, I've I, I love playing with him, uh, and I, I've played with some great players. Um, you know, I really have, but. He's for me. He's number one. Just, just slightly yeah. beat, beating Steven Gerrard. It's interesting you say that, Rob. About us not really touching a lot on the, the Liverpool. You're, you're nine years in the first team at Liverpool, Steve. Which means I'll probably get an awful lot of flack from the Liverpool fans listening to this. I know you did in times as well. And, and with all these years that have moved on, your relationship in general with Liverpool fans. Obviously, I'm sure the majority still in love with the player that you were for the football club. You still get one or two naysayers that still hold it against you, that your manner of your exit from the club? Uh, no, to be very honest. Um, I'm still involved with Liverpool now. I mean, Liverpool, no fans really harp, harp on back to when I played. I'm still involved with the Liverpool Academy, which I go to. So I think most fans know I'm still involved with the club. Um, there's probably people that I've got a problem with me leaving Liverpool at the time and leaving on a free contract because of course everybody's obsessed with with money and how much you get um, so maybe that was a point at, the, at that time and place and maybe people think about it now but you know nobody nobody necessarily mentioned it to me now and I, I don't expect people to mention it to me at the time at the time I think people were upset about it and there was a lot of as I said you couldn't control the narrative because I was one of the first and Liverpool wanted to sign me uh, wanted me to stay, of course. You can't win that press battle with a club. You know, everybody adores the club. You're, the club will go for hundreds of years and, and players come and go. So you just have to accept it. But there was a load of, you know, load of nonsense at the time written and said and on radio polls and people saying, oh, I, I was going to earn this amount of money, which of course all, was all proved wrong because I, I, I didn't sign a new contract. But it was, you're going to, you're going to, um, he's going to earn this amount of money and there's, nurses earning X amount of money so of course it's it, a lot of the time people were having a bit of a field day from it but you know I was a, a local lad from Kirkdale very very working class area like Robbie was from Toxted we have more important things on our mind than listen to people spout off who don't know who, who don't know half of a, of a, of a story and it, you know it, that's why I take I take everything now with a pinch of salt and more so because of social media most of the stories that you read about are complete garbage. So, you know, it was back then. So, um, you know, it, nothing ever nothing ever fazed me. My father was very proud of me. My mother, likewise. My father's friends who all played locally in Kirkdale and Walton, who were very, very good at playing football, but probably never had the opportunities to reach the, the professional status because of the early 60s uh, and, and times like that. And they didn't have, they didn't have the, um, you know, the, the 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 right availability. They didn't have the transport facilities. The clubs weren't, you know, as proactive as they were in the eighties, nineties. So, you know, I was playing for them, making it as a footballer, and they were so proud of me that I played. I went and played for Liverpool, and then I went on to play for that glorious white shirt of the Al Alfredo de Stefano era, you know, which was incredibly famous. Puskas and people like that. So they were, the only, they were the only people that mattered to me about whether I wanted to play. I was very professional. I, I gave it my all. But then if, time, if, if, it's, if it's time to move on because of different scenarios that fans don't realise, it's time to move on. And, you know, that. so it was, it never, never, ever influenced me that. Never, ever bothered me. I joined Liverpool for nothing. They didn't, you know, I left for nothing. Nobody paid anything for me. And that was the way, that was the way it was. Yeah, great. Yeah, and listen, yeah. can't knock that at all, Steve. And anyone listening to this that perhaps have knocked you in the past will listen to that and say, hey, listen, fair they'll play. Lock, they'll lock me again. To that. <laughs> oh, well, maybe. 
Maybe. And, and I want to finish, Come, uh, coming back full circle on, on the punditry stuff. This Liverpool team, obviously this podcast goes out on Monday. Liverpool don't play again, I think, until April 4th at Arsenal. Uh, Jürgen this week has said impossible that Liverpool finish top four. It's not impossible. He's playing mind no, games there, is he not? Of course it's not. Of course it's not impossible because of the of the, the points difference between them. They've only got West Ham, I think, now and Chelsea in front of them. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, so, of course, they've got a chance. Of course, they've got a chance. But you're not just... You know, before the Wolves victory, which was a hard victory for them, and it wasn't a scintillating performance. It was just, that you know, a, a, a gritty grind-down performance, which sometimes you have to have, particularly after the European fixture. And, you know, they were at home, but they were away, of course, in, uh, in Budapest. Of course, they've got a chance. But, you know, Liverpool are better when they have their full-strength squad in and they'll be better next season. I think that goes without saying. So, um, I think they've acquitted themselves really well. I thought they overachieved when they were top of the league in Christmas and, and January. And since January, they've they've underachieved. Very much so. Um, we all know why. It's easy, it's easy to see and it's easy to say. And we all know why. You know, last year, listening to Manchester City fans, when they were struggling or not struggling, but not anywhere near Liverpool, it was because of Vincent Company. It was because of the, the problems with Laporte. And that's completely legitimate. And it's the same this year with, with, with Liverpool. And sometimes you just have to take it on the chin and move on and try and find scenarios. But it has heavily affected them this year. They'll have a great chance of winning the Champions League because in a, in a knockout formation, you just need to get the job done. They'll have a great chance of that because they'll always score goals. Um, they have to be professional and still carry on to try and beat Chelsea, who have got, of course, eyeing the Champions League up as well. And they were excellent last night against Atletico Madrid. So it's hard. They have to catch Chelsea because Man, C- uh, Man United and City and Leicester are, 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 you know, are way ahead. And Chelsea are in really good form at the minute. So I can understand why Jürgen's saying that. Are you paying out on our bet, Robbie, yet? Well, not to pay out, is it? No one's told me anything to do yet, Chris, have you? Shag, we've got a, um, we had a bet, well, we had a bet per se, didn't we, about uh, should Liverpool, because Chris is a big Man U fan, I should have said that earlier on, actually, you wouldn't have got on, but... Sorry, no. Steve. He's got a bet that Man United finish above Liverpool. Now, we've done this a oh. while ago now, so obviously I'll have to do some sort of um, forfeit. Forfeit. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually don't know what it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I might have to wear a Man, Man United shirt. Oh, don't wear that. Just stop eating Chinese for a week. You'd rather wear a man new shirt for a week than give up Chinese for a week. You cheeky No, I know, yeah, I know. I didn't know you're a man new fan. Yeah, but sorry, Steve. We we tell you that at the end. I think they'll um I think where would you rather what would you rather do, Chris? Would you rather finish second? Or beat Milan tonight and you know win the Europa League, and, and what still finish top four? No, finish fifth. Oh Jesus! Uh, swap swap with Liverpool. Well, not Liverpool because West Ham is fifth, aren't they? Liverpool is sixth. What would I rather? I mean, this is a cop out answer. I'd probably rather finish in the Champions League than win the Europa. Well, no, in fact, if you win the Europa League, you get in the Champions League. Oh yeah, League of anyway, course so you do. You do. You I'll, do. You I'll, do. I'll, course, I'll take yeah. the Europa League. I'll take yeah, the Europa yeah, yeah. League. Sorry, yeah, you Trophy do. Trophy is right. important. Yeah, but I, I think, think there's so. merit. I think there's merit to what Ollie says. I think you can't hide behind a trophy. And I think, listen, I'm not Ollie's biggest fan. I've said it time and time again. Honestly, I think he's very fortunate to be in that job. But progress has been made. Mm. I think this upcoming summer is a big one. The one that they all want is Haaland. I think if Man United move heaven and earth for him, maybe another centre half. I think even with Ollie in charge, I think they'll go close next year. I really do. And do you think? Do you think now with the pandemic? 
and people struggling that United should go out and spend £150 million because I have this inner fight with me. I don't think Liverpool should spend... I don't think Liverpool should spend money in the... I think if we need to suffer, we need to suffer. But I think it's slightly... I think it's slightly uncouth to blow £150 million when when fans are not allowed in and they've lo- clubs have lost money all year and, you know, people... Certainly, certainly, I'm speaking from a Liverpool perspective and where I was brought up. But what do you think about Man U? Well, uh, it's interesting because if you finish outside the top four, I don't think Liverpool will be given that option. No. I don't see the Fenway Sports Group spending money if you don't make Champions League football. That's why more than ever, Champions League football is absolutely imperative this season. Do Man U spend £150 million in Haaland? I, I, I honestly don't think they do. No. I think, you know, with the pandemic... Do Dortmund require 150 million? I don't know. Is it near oh, yeah. 100? Dortmund, I know it's... Dortmund will sell, won't they? They'll they'll sell. They it's will. just that I I hear people saying, "Oh, last summer we, you know, Liverpool, we should have went big. We should have went big." It's like, well, no, you you can't you can't go big. Of course, you can't go big, and you can't necessarily go big this year. Liverpool brought in Jota, Thiago, good signing, Simicus, and balanced the books to a certain extent by getting people out the door. I just think it's not called for this yeah. moment just to say. Here's a hundred. Here's a hundred and fifty. You know, on two players, on three players. But that, it's that's, easy. It's Shag, Shag, that's you being sensible, though, isn't it? That's you being obviously getting your your business head on. But surely, from a manager point of view or a fan point of view, you, you want you want to spend money, and you want to be successful. Yeah. So yeah, the, I, the fans and, and managers aren't prepared to sort of wait and and suffer, no, like you say. I know, but that's just my that's just my own personal thing. You know, I don't. I just don't think it'd be. I just don't think it'd be right on Liverpool to spend a hundred million pounds on one player, you know, just to got to go again. You know what I mean? In this in this climate, maybe next year or the year after. I just think now, no fans in the stadium. You know, people struggling. Liverpool losing money left, right, and centre because there's no fans and the grounds not open. So you think it looks weird? You know, you were born in you 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 you, you were born in Toxteth. I know. Yeah, I, I. I mean, I agree with you. It does look weird, but I'm. I'm sorry with the fans and, and managers. No, I know. I know. Success. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And the other worry, I think the other big elephant in the room is if Man United and Liverpool don't go in for Haaland, I think, and I've said this on my radio show over here in Dubai, I think it's inevitable that he ends up at City. And that's a frightening prospect for the rest of the league. Because everyone that I've spoken to, I've got a few scout mates in in, in the Premier League who have gone over to see him in Salzburg. This kid is generational. So if you don't, if United or, or Liverpool don't go in now and they allow City a free run at him, oh my God. I mean, that's just taking an already dominant team. Aguero, I expect to move on. And you're adding a generational talent that could well yeah. be on a par with, with I'll say Rooney for now. There's, there's hallmarks, you know, a lot of comparisons made there. But someone who could go on and be, maybe not Ronaldo Messi-esque, Steve, but someone who could go on and score 30, well, his 40 num- goals. His, his, numbers are, his numbers are Ronaldo Messi-esque at this, at this age. He's certainly insane. better than Ronaldo's at this age. I've seen him lots of times, lots of times, and he's been he's been outstanding. And there's talk about Chelsea, and there's talk about Chelsea need a number nine, don't they? And and um, Man City certainly need a number nine if, if, you, if you, you believe everything about Aguero and about the way they play. It might, it might, it, you know, it, it might. Ha- they might have to change the way they play. Man City. That's the only thing. If they get if that type of player there, well, Manchester United will certainly be interested. I don't know whether Liverpool would be interested. In that just, I know he's a super player. It's more, but, it's more Mbappe, isn't it? I think yeah, Mbappe's I think so. more I think, the one. I, I think he suits the way Liverpool play more. But I think Mbappe would probably be twice as expensive and would would warrant wages that are just too expensive for Liverpool. I, re- I really do. And again. 
spending 200 million pounds on a player and giving them half a million quid a week, it just doesn't sit right with me. It really doesn't. Just on that point then, I'll ask you this as well, Rob. If you're saying Liverpool are not in a position or you, you feel that, I mean, again, if they don't make the Champions League, they, they might not even have this debate. They, they'll simply not be able to spend. Does Jürgen at all then think, well, wait a minute, I need to alter one or two things here. If I've not got the money and the, 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 the club isn't willing to spend, there's no fear from either of you that Jürgen says... I'm going to walk away here. I, I wouldn't have thought so. I, I, look, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about they'll get the money that uh, that you're saying, Eddie, hundreds, 150 million. Yeah, they'll get, they'll get money, won't they? They'll get money, but you can you can guarantee more or less that they'll bring in players to sort of benefit the squad because that's one of Liverpool's problems. When the, uh, the first 11 are not playing, then you look at the um, the squad is not as strong as maybe maybe five, six of the teams in the Premier League. So I think yeah. they'll strengthen certainly areas of the, uh, the team that need strengthen um, and strengthen that squad. Maybe they will get money, but no, certainly not to the extent of, um, of yeah. what you talk about for them players. Yeah, they'll get a certain no. chunk. They'll get a certain chunk of money, and they'll be backed by by uh, the Fenway Sports Group. And I think they'll try and sell some of their um, players who you know they they don't really count on. And we we could list about four or five of them um, who were out on loan or who were not not playing enough now for the first team squads, and they could they could benefit from the money that they generate from selling them. So they'd be a significant pot, but I'm the same as Bob. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to go out and spend, you know, 75 like we did on Virgil or, or, or the goalkeeper. I mean, that with inflation and everything else, that, that will go up. So I don't think we'll see the likes of them. Not not this season anyway, but I, I certainly think Liverpool will strengthen. I don't think there's any, I don't think you have to worry if you're a Liverpool fan what will happen. You know, they'll get players back, they'll strengthen again in the summer, but I just, I, I I just don't think they'll be able to strengthen to the the extent of the um you know going going into battle with a, with four or five teams with, with for Haaland or Sancho or, or 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 certainly or certainly in Mbappe I think that's just a, a non-starter whatsoever. Yeah, listen, I hear you on that. It's going to be a fascinating summer ahead and you're right with this pandemic. It's going to be interesting as to which teams spend, which teams think of the ethical and, and the moral standpoint of it all and which teams simply can't spend because, of course, the fans haven't been in the stadium for yeah. the past year or so. I'm conscious, Steve, we've kept you far too long. Can he thank you enough? Well, no I say I can't thank you enough. I know you two are good mates, but from my point of view, massive thank you for joining us on the Rob Fowler yeah. podcast. It's been great. Yeah, yeah thanks, no worries. Very, thanks very much, Mr. Stephen. No worries, lad. I'll have, go and have a look at the Cheltenham form now and then I'll see you later on. Top man, Steve. Thanks for that, mate. See you later, right. boys. See have you a good shagged. day. Speak to you later, See you later, later lad. See you later. Thanks very much, mate. This is the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. McDonald's McCafe. Great tasting coffee. Simple. Dubai Eye 103.8. Awesome stuff. Robbie Fowler, episode 11. Uh, Steve McManaman famous for the number 7 shirt he wore 8 didn't he at Real Madrid but episode 11 in the can you're a good mucker and uh, he's a good lad Steve great lad isn't he great lad a lot of time for him um, we obviously spoke there he talked about all his teammates all the you know the good things uh, but I sort of touched upon it at the end there but he was, he was such a player I mean he really was uh, was it 11 11 finals in 4 years 8 trophies I mean that's that's incredible. So you know, uh, I don't think he gets the the credit and the adulation he should be getting because uh, I think he's uh, in terms of a player going abroad and achieving what he's done. Uh, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. It is. 
you touched on it actually early on in the interview whereby you look at where he started at Liverpool, he was wide, wasn't he? And then at Real Madrid, he became more central. And that's, that's not easy for him to do that. Tells you what a good player he is. Well, yeah, uh, you, you just said there. But even we never really spoke that much about Liverpool because obviously we were we were interested in um, obviously the Real Madrid and, and various other elements of, of his career. Uh, but certainly that year where I touched upon the 95, 96, um, he was incredible. Now, he, he played as sort of um, the 10 in a free roll um, just in front of John Barnes and, and Iota, whether it was uh, Michael Thomas or whether it was Jamie Redknapp. Uh, but he was that player who could play anywhere in the pitch, but he was the player who could open up defences. He was just in, an absolute incredible player, no matter where you put him on. Uh, on the park, he was brilliant. Uh, but yeah. I think his his best positions and where he probably enjoyed most was um, was was certainly that sort of centre midfield. You whether it was because uh, I mean he, he sat at times for Real Madrid. You know at Liverpool he he was the ten. You know he, he played sort of as an eight as well. So uh, he's played in a number of roles and he's uh, he's excelled in every position he's played. In all fairness, yeah. Yeah, what a player he was, Steve McManaman. And as you say, eight trophies in those four years at Real. I'm conscious these podcasts are getting longer and longer with each passing week. We just have too good a time when we speak to these guys. I've got to ask you one last thing, Rob. Now, we've uh, we've known each other a number of years. I'm hoping that you will be dorning a Man United kit, <laughs> of course, losing this bet. There's one thing I'm going to ask of you, Uh-oh. and this will be the only thing I ask of you. The next time you've got a party at Brazilian Ronaldo's house, <laughs> send me an invite, okay? <laughs> How good's that story? It's brilliant, isn't it? I do. I, I'm I, loving I, it, loving it, loving it. Honestly, <laughs> hey, with the smoke machine and the flashing lights, it was, honestly, it was unreal. But I loved it the bit where before we were in the in the bar and he he obviously passed me the drink, and I just thought he was giving me the drink, and it was no, 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 cheers, cheers. <laughs> I love that. Oh, so then, oh it God, caught- I just drank his drink. <laughs> And it cost you probably 40 quid to oh, replace oh, it. It was all right, though. I was sat having a drink with Ronaldo and a few of the, uh, the, the other boys. But that, what, what we touched upon there as well when we were on the um, on the bus doing the, doing the tour of the city. Uh, and we stopped off at a fountain. And obviously, Macca just alluded to himself there when he was talking about, um, you know, he, he invited me to come on and let's do the, uh, the walk around the fountain. And I would say, no, I said, that will be taking the <laughs> too much so I was a little bit embarrassed then so I've just so when you can see on an open top bus and you, you see the, uh, the like the, the the barrier and I've just sort of got my head down a little bit so I didn't really want people to, to see me <laughs> and he was spot on when he said there must have been about you know 50 100 people there and he went this Robbie Fowler and like this gang of English people were all started singing there's only one Robbie Fowler Madrid have just won the league and, <laughs> and this Fowler you could see honestly you could see his as far as the eye could see, it was just like the streets were just full of people. Uh, and just at the front, there was, must have been 50 or 100 people who were all like, they must have all been scouts who come over to see Macca. And they all started and singing and yelled out, there's only one Robbie Fowler. It was brilliant. And then you're mortified. Next day in the newspapers, Real Madrid linked with a £15 million move for Robbie Fowler. I ah, know. Yeah, but I think I'd, I'd, I'd well what finished a story. by then, Chris. No, <laughs> no 2000 and... Where would you have been? You were still at Liverpool, right? 2002-03, or were you at Leeds yeah, no, by then? I was, at, I was Leeds. at City then, I was at City. Oh, were you? Yeah. When did you join Leeds? Year? Uh, Leeds was 2002. Ah, so you would have been You would have been at Leeds? 2002-03, um, you would have been at Leeds? Yeah, well, I was only at Leeds for a year, wasn't I? Yeah. So oh, yeah, okay, I'm, so... I'm not, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, in fact, I, I, yeah, I might have been at Leeds, actually. I don't, I don't know. 
Either way, that move to Real Madrid did not come off. Yeah, and instead, enough. you moved to Man City. Yeah. Can he have it all? Can he have it all, Rob? Oh, Listen, bless you, my man. Pleasure. Good man. stuff. Good man. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, we will be back, episode 12 of the Robbie Fowler podcast. Getting inundated now. Can't reveal too much, but I'm getting messages from people, <gasps> uh, fit former players, very keen to be on this pod, Rob. So you've got to sign off on them, and they might be on next week. Well, it's about time you sort of weighed in, Chris, isn't it? I've got a couple of man new boys lined up. We've got a former Arsenal man lined up. We've got a couple of managers lined up as well. So, yeah, this pod's got legs yet, Robert. Good man, good man. That's what we like to see. That's what we like to hear. Cheers, Rob. See you next week. See you later, pal. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. This has been the Robbie Fowler Podcast. Powered by McDonald's. Hear it again and more of our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.